everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry and I've seen Uncle Ben die more times than I've eaten arugula. <laughs> this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwart, seekwart.org to get the best in your comic book related news, reviews and critiques, buy their books, read their articles and watch their movies. For example, it's currently Wonder Woman week at Seacord in honor of the new film coming out. Uh, take a look. We've got articles. We've got explorations of Wonder Woman over the many, many decades she's been around. She really has been around for a long time. And if you like Seacord and if you like the Smorgasbord, well, support us. We are on Patreon, after all. Support smart criticism in comics. So, not a lot of news. No. The one big thing which I will vent about, if you allow me... Go for it. I'm, not, I'm saying if Sean allows me, you listeners, you have no choice. Like, <laughs> unless you play fast forward. Uh, since the last episode has been aired, it's been announced that Zack Snyder is dropping off the final stages of the reshoots for the Justice League movie because, as it turns out, one of his daughters committed suicide over a month ago. And nobody, you know, they didn't tell the public about it. And rightfully so. It's his own business. It's a private thing. They just announced he's dropping off and Josh Whedon is going to come in and like finish the reshoots or edits or whatever. And I'm so angry about the online response because like mm. five seconds, five seconds after the announcement, the internet was filled with people discussing what does it mean to the Justice League movie? If the movie is good, who will get a credit? Will we give it to Josh Whedon? Will we give it to Zack Snyder? Will we give it to... And I'm like, someone died. Like... I get that you'll have to talk about it eventually, but not even five minutes, like 10 seconds of moderation, of self-respect, of proper condolences. And somebody mentioned on Twitter that the worst, the single worst response that you can see, and you can see plenty of those, is I'm not a fan of Zack Snyder, but dot, dot, dot. Because who cares? Who cares what you think about Zack Snyder as a filmmaker? Yeah. Like, like his daughter committed suicide. Who cares? You don't need to qualify it. If you say condolences and it's so sad and it's and it's a terrible thing, nobody would mistakenly think, oh, you now support every single movie he made. You're a Zack Snyder fanboy or whatever. Because what the fudge? Well, you know what it is? It also goes to this whole issue of all this time, right? Zack Snyder has been in the public eye, specifically with regards to DC movies, since Man of Steel, right? This was, what, 2012? Yes. People have had five years to make fun of him, express their anger that he's still involved, you know, pick apart his flaws as a filmmaker, of which there are many. I'm not denying that. When it comes to this, it doesn't matter. There is no need for a hot take. The internet is built on hot takes, and really, for that, there was no need to it. No, but what I'm saying is, you know... It speaks to something that is very wrong, and this connects sort of to what I was talking about last episode about who the quote-unquote real fan base really is. You know, there is something deeply wrong with a certain percentage of fans of this particular content. Because, you know, let's set aside... Zack Snyder's merits or, or his criticism, like, set the, those issues aside. If he had stepped down for any other reason, then sure, I would have said, okay, if you really don't like him, go celebrate in the streets. He stepped down for whatever. The fact that it doesn't even click with people that these are unusual circumstances and that maybe, you know, 
if you have to start your statement with I'm not a fan, but, or if you have to, if your first thought on hearing that a 20 year old law student committed suicide and her dad is dropping out of the films because, you know, for obvious reasons, and your first thought is, well, what's going to happen to the film? That check your humanity. Oh, or just say nothing. You know, I don't understand why in online discourse, more people don't exercise their given right to be quiet. You don't have to say anything. You're not obligated to stand up on a soapbox and say Zack Snyder sucks. We all know that. We've been here since 2012. That's not new to anybody. I saw this and my response was awkward silence. I had nothing to say about it. I have had all of the opportunities. Thank Glob because, you know, Snyder really is one of those people where if you have an animus against them, you will have the ammunition to do the takedowns when you want. It's like Joe Quesada, right? If I want to rip on Joe Quesada for whatever reason, trust me, I can find evidence. But there's a certain line that you don't need to cross. It's not necessary. I don't want to talk about the Justice League movie up until it comes out. Because at this point, every single conversation about it is going to feel like this terrible thing of I'm and other people you know, talking over a dead body. Well, there is one thing that I do want to point out that I think is interesting just in terms of a discussion point, right? The fact that his replacement is Joss Whedon and what that means overall. We've talked in the past about Whedon's problems with Marvel that caused him to leave and he was burnt out and nobody actually heard from him for a while after Age of Ultron. And he's coming back now on the Warner Brothers side of things, not as a director per se, but as someone who's handling like reshoots. And that's interesting. I'm not sure what that means, like broadly speaking. It could have been interesting to discussion in any other connotation, in any other place of discussion but where we are right now I really want personally and I would prefer the whole stupid internet to just keep a moment of silence and when I say a moment I mean like five like a week you can do it people you can like wait a week wait for the movie to come out and then talk about it I don't know wait don't just start mm, you know, I don't care officially I don't care because I'm sorry, it's just so annoying that so many people in the nerd sphere that supposedly care about people, they don't care about people. Like, they only care about them as, like, products like Zack Snyder. Will he deliver the product or not? Joss Whedon, will he deliver the product or not? And his daughter died. I have to object to your characterization of nerds as caring about people. If there's anything that this fandom has taught us over the last 30 years, it's that... You know what it is? It's the stereotype of the comic book guy, right? We keep coming back to this, that there is a certain core readership, a certain core fan base that exists only to affirm the worst stereotypes of comic book readers, right? To, to affirm that we are all the comic book guy. It's like this news with the, um, you know, a, a few theaters in the States have announced that they want to do special Women-only screenings for Wonder Woman. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, which is a Alan fantastic Graf- idea. Oh, which is fine. It's a fantastic idea. These are, in addition to the existing slots, they're also doing viewings for uh, exclusive women audience. And, like, it's not, him- and it's not even one of those. It's a super early, pre-regular audience screening. It's a screening that comes out after the movie is already seen at its debut. 
And it's only like two screenings in one theater that are interspersed with the regular screening. And exactly. And you see, but this is the difference between, to my mind, a healthy mind and a diseased mind. A healthy mind would just say, let them have it. I can watch Wonder Woman whenever the hell I want to. I will buy a ticket for a screening that is convenient to me. I don't need to barge in on an all-women event. I certainly don't need to protest and say that it is discrimination. It's not discrimination. Go see the movie some other time and shut the hell up. That's what it is. And when you think about it, these things have been going on since, I mean, we've had this conversation about Furiosa. We've had this conversation about, it, it just, it doesn't end. It's the same talking point that is just applied to different books over and over and over and over again. Mockingbird, ask me about my feminist agenda. That's what it is. You know, that there is a certain mindset within geek culture and it expresses itself very powerfully in comics fandom specifically, that is just sick. I don't have another word to say it. You know, I, I don't have another frame of reference for it. It's diseased. There's some kind of pathology that needs to be treated there. Mm, yeah. For all that these stories, and this is the amazing thing, right? Like for all that these stories, right? The comic book, the superhero genre has always been built on ideals and compassion for other people and heroism and patriotism and all of these positive values. And yet look at how people are completely unable to apply them in real life situations. And I wouldn't have a problem if people, because I have some friends who read superhero stuff and they say, for me, it's just entertainment. Like, I don't take this seriously, and that's fine. What I really hate is people who pretend to take it seriously, and, and they need to justify their Marvel and DC habit by saying, oh, it's not just, you know, people in capes. It's meaningful stories about heroism and inspiration, and it taught me to be a better person. And then when they see something like the Wonder Woman-only screening, which is something that Wonder Woman would approve of, probably. Of course it they was. They immediately go like, wah, 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 discrimination. Oppression. Yeah. Male genocide. You know, racist X-Men fans. God save me. <laughs> racist X-Men fans. A thing that it's not only exists, it's, it's surprisingly common in internet boards. And you can't... Oh, well, you can. Obviously, you can. Because, of course uh, you can. Uh, you know, the, the, laws of, the laws of physics don't work in the comic book world. They won't work here. You can't be a racist X-Men fan. And I'm not saying, again... Some people just read it to entertain it, and they say it's, it is what it is, and it's fine. But you can't be like, I'm a serious fan who cares about the meaning of the X-Men comics, and also, fuck black people. Well, these are... I wish, and I re You know, there was this whole talk years and years ago, and I think it's still ongoing, about, like, the fake geek girl phenomenon, how people just love to point at girls and assume that they're fake geeks. I'm like, no, you guys are the fake geeks. If you are capable of expressing the notion that Captain America shouldn't be political or, you know, something along those lines, it's like, wow, you really haven't been paying attention, have you? We've talked about that before, but it's always the discourse seems to be stuck in a rut. And I find that frustrating. We haven't really moved forward anywhere. We're still having the same conversations every single freaking time. It's always the same subject. Anytime something involving women shows up or there's something about, you know, oh my God, there's a black person on my, there's too many black people. You're shoving uh, gay characters down my throats. Agenda, agenda, every time. But it's always the same reaction to literally anything that's different. And those are the people I think that just have to be 
they have to be shut out. I'm going to have something to say about that at the very end of this episode when we get to the uh, trade review, because there's a point there that I want to make. But really, that aspect of fandom, that sort of the Sheldon of fandom, you know what I mean? From the Big Bang Theory? Oh, yes. The, the Sheldon, but taken to a far more cartoonish extreme, which really is saying something. Well, so, you know, before we do the previews, uh, one bit of positive news, since we're talking about so-called <laughs> fake big girls in movies... Uh, Fox Animation has picked up the rights to Witch Boy, which is a new graphic novel by uh, Molly Osterteg. She of the strong female protagonist webcomic that was printed yes. by... Uh, was it drawn quarterly? Well, I think it started as a webcomic. No, it is it a webcomic, but I think it's printed via drawn quarterly. Maybe I'm wrong, though. Uh, I've read the first volume, and it's pretty good. It's a pretty good webcomic. Yeah. And... This witch boy was snatched up to. I think it's. I think Fox Animation is television. They don't say if it's TV or movies, but it was snatched up even before it was published because Scholastic, I think, only literally sent it to the stores over the next month. So they just saw the concept and the images, and they said, "We'll do that." I mean, it's a strong concept. As it's been explained, the premise of Witch Boy is about this thirteen-year-old boy who is part of a magical family where all the girls are raised to be witches and all the boys are raised to be shapeshifters. And he wants to be a witch. So there's some obvious a bit, non-conformity a shape, subtext to it. Terry Pratchett, right? What was it called? Equal Rights, the first, one of the first earliest of his books. Yeah. Uh, now, what's interesting to me is that I didn't know that Molly Osterteg is a couple with Noelle Stevenson of Nemona fame. And Noelle Stevenson also has like, she had like three uh, projects in production to be like movies and TVs and such. Lumberjanes movie and the Nimona movie and the new young adult series that she's supposedly also doing for Scholastic. And all of it before either of them is 30. So that's basically the most powerful couple in comics right now. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, they have outpaced uh, Deconic Infraction by quite a bit. No, congratulations, sir. I mean, to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to Ostertag's work prior to this, but the description made it seem really interesting. And the fact that Scholastic Press is publishing the graphic novel. Yeah, Scholastic does a lot of, like, that's what they do. They have young adult graphic novel. It's just not something that comes usually to our, like, wheelhouse. It's not something that you and I read habitually. Uh, I read Smile, actually, recently, which is, it's good, it's just, it's not my thing good, so I don't have a lot to say about it. But, like, I, w- I would gladly buy it to my nephew when he's the right age to read that stuff. Like, a Yeah, of I can see that. Yeah, so congratulations, I'm looking forward to it in both variations. You know, I'll watch the show, I'll read the book. Sounds good. Shall we move on to previews? Let's. So, we'll start with... Uh, these are the previews for August. Let's start with DC. Um, yeah, I, I, I skipped Marvel and DC completely. I just... <laughs> okay. I'm at the point of my life where I'm... Why, why waste my time? There are some items, I think, that are at the very least worth discussing. So, first of all, for fans of Scott Snyder, uh, his big universe-spanning bat event, Dark Knights, is starting in August with Greg Capullo. Uh, he has not been working with Capullo since he moved to All-Star Batman, right? Yeah, it's been a year now. Okay, well, only a year. Well, so they're they're getting back together. It's going to sell like 100,000 copies sight unseen and good for people who like it, I guess. They're a strong team. People like them, so fine. The fact that it's a universe-spanning bat event, not for me, but whatever. 
Uh, Nightwing The New Order number one. This is by Kyle Higgins and Trevor McCarthy. And I mentioned this only because I'm baffled, Tom. Higgins is literally running the exact same storyline in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers over at Boom. <laughs> where there's a dark future and a hero has turned into like a tyrant. Well, that's that's a stock story for superheroes. But, no, very specifically the fact that Higgins is currently doing this twice. Well, un- unless the story ends with Nightwing summoning his Megazord. Used to work with Batman. You think he doesn't have a giant bat robot? He probably does. No, it, it would be rather charming if he just woke up and somebody told him, you're late with the script for the new Nightwing project. And he's, oh, uh, 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 the dark future, looking at his at his Power Ranger scripts. Uh, tyrant hero. Yes, 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 good. Maybe he accidentally sent a draft of the script to DC instead of to Boom. And they're like, sure. And then he's like, well, crap, I guess I have to do both. But again, it's, it's kind of a stock story. And if it was... Two different writers doing it at the same time, we probably wouldn't have noticed. Probably not. We would just assume that that was a trend. Although it does seem to be taking a cue from Secret Empire, which, guys, nobody needs to be doing that. One last item from DC, and this is one that I already know you and I disagree on. Uh, Mr. Miracle Number 1 by Tom King and Mitch Gerads. It's not that I disagree on it, it's just that... You're not super hyped for it. It's a great creative team. I would prefer them to be doing something else. Well, there were two things that caught my eye here that made me more optimistic than I would have been. Because King's profile, I think, has taken a bit of a dip since he started Batman. It just hasn't been as on point as the rest of his stuff. First of all, this is a 12-issue series. Oh, so that is that is his wheelhouse, yeah. Yeah, so it's limited run, fine. But I was thinking about it. It's Mr. Miracle, right? Nobody is going to step on King's toes here in the way that they probably do with Batman, where things need to align, and now they have that damn button thing, and Dr. Manhattan, and whatever, like, like, there's all of that extra stuff. Mr. Miracle, I mean, it's scot-free. Nobody's even using scot-free right now. Are the new gods even in circulation at DC right now? I assume so, because the Justice League movie is going to come out, and the new gods are there, so... Eh. So they, if... They were a big part of the end of the DCU stuff because Jeff Johns had his Dark Side War event, which I haven't read. So it was only two years ago. They were a major theme in the mainstream DC universe. So I guess they d- didn't disappear completely. Yeah, but I don't think that they've been at the forefront of any particular storylines right now. As a rule, King is better when he can do his own thing and he doesn't have to work within the framework of other people, like, deciding from above, you should do a crossover, you should feature this character. Yeah. So I think that this could be playing more to his strengths, and that's why I'm more hyped about it. If it's a 12-issue run, that means he's probably planned it out. It's hard for me to believe that DC's going to interfere with him again and try and pull a plug. It's not actually going to change anything, but I think that it'll be fun to read. It'll be like Vision. You know, if it reaches that level or the level of Omega Men, I'm fine with that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, one item from Marvel. Okay. I know that we're n- we are not really giving it any space or time here for obvious reasons, but the thing about Marvel is, first of all, as predicted, not only has Secret Empire been extended by an issue, because they didn't know how long it would last, apparently, uh, we're getting Generations right at the ass end of it. 
And I just have to say, right, this is a hard pass on everything. It's the current writers, right? Tom Taylor on Wolverine, Jason Aaron on Thor, etc. But they're shoehorning in all the original characters too. And some of it is already like a Thor team up book by Jason Aaron is the regular Thor book. Not only that, you know, when it comes to the original characters and Marvel treating them like the, the heroes are coming back or whatever, it's like, you know, first of all, We've had those characters for 50, 60 years already. We have those stories. That's, you know, over and done with. And not only that, they're in the movies. Thor Ragnarok is literally coming out at the end of the month with the same Thor that is coming back in generations. Right? Like, this is how... It's just another manifestation of how short-sighted and stupid Marvel are that instead of building up a stable of characters who you cannot find in the film and could therefore be a genuine pull for readers, right? Like, what if your comics suddenly had different versions of these characters, so you would go to see the films and you'd want to read the comics too? But no, it's like everything has to be in sync, even though when they have been in sync, film sales have had nothing to do with book sales. Never have. So now they're all coming back. I don't need Wolverine back. I really don't. I don't need original Thor back. He's been sticking his head in to uh, the Jane Foster Thor run for practically since the beginning. I don't need any of it. But, Sean, it's meat and potatoes on your pizza. How can you not like it? Then I'm going vegan. It's that old thing again, Sean. Ugh. It's that old thing again, Sean. You like that old thing. You remember liking that old thing when you were younger? Old, young? Listen, I still like the old thing, but I can go and read. I actually have the old thing. I'm looking at it on my bookshelf right now. The old thing hasn't gone anywhere. And quite frankly, these writers are not up to the task of doing the new thing. Because, you know, look at Jeff Johns and Barry Allen, right? That was a textbook example of let me, like, brush a whole lot of dust off this old, 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 old character. Throw him back in the mix and make him the one. Who gives a shit? Image? Image, finally. Uh, the big one is something that I'm more interested in for the creative team than the solicitations. Uh, Red Lens number one, written by Jodie Belair with art by uh, Vanessa Del Rey. And it's a horror book about a sunny town called Red Lens, Florida, where the police are failing to maintain control and a coven of killer witches plan to take everything away from them. Is this Belair's first writing gig? Uh, I, the first one that I know of. She's naturally the biggest colorist, well, one of the biggest colorists in the business. And in terms of work number one, there is, I think she paints like 20 books a month or something like that. Crazy. Ooh. Um, well, and I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested only in terms of the creative team because the actual plot synopsis is a bit meh. Like, yeah, it's a horror book, killer witches. It's a small town, USA, but there's something hidden beneath. Well, listen, I mean, technically, when you think about it, Scott Snyder's Witches had sort of similar themes, and that worked out fine. Well, it worked out fine as long as it was published, but we will get to Scott Snyder's Witches later, believe me. (laughs) Okay, uh, I have an item here from Rich Tommaso, Spy Seal number one, uh, about a seal who is also a spy working for MI6. That sounds like something out of Arrested Development, 
<laughs> but uh, <laughs> he describes it as Adventures of Tintin Meet Yusagi Ujimbo, which are both things that I like. Uh, tall order. I'm not sure that he should really be drawing those kinds of comparisons. Well, you don't really like Yusagi Ujimbo from the one issue you've read, so... I know, don't. For you, it's an easy bar to clear. Well, I don't personally, but just because that I don't doesn't mean that other people don't, right? Like, I'm sure that Usagi Ujimbo has a very committed and passionate fan base, and oh, drawing yeah. those kinds of comparisons, it does require you, I think, to live up to them. I think it's interesting that he's doing something which is more in the adventure vein because his recent stuff tended to be like more experimental atmospheric stuff yeah we'll see we'll see how it turns out it could uh, go either I, way what I like about Tommaso is that he does his stuff in short runs She-Wolf 8 issues this one supposedly is also a very like a two trade collection deal and then he's moving on to something else Dark Corridor yeah A he's never too late with his work and B, he has an end game in mind. Now, speaking of late stuff, Rocket Girl number eight. <laughs> now, they Ooh. promise in the solicits here that nine to ten will come out in September and October. But Rocket Girl was a book that was launched before we started recording this podcast, Sean. And I have left problem when books take a long break between arcs. But this has been a break of over a year, I think, between issues 7 and 8. And it's one of those, we've talked about it so many times before, if you do a serial, pacing matters. And extenuating circumstances, forces beyond their control, you need to put food on the table so they went to work for Marvel with Moon Girl. Which I don't think anybody would have minded, except that... The, the problem with Rocket Girl specifically is I think it was also one of those books where the first arc didn't necessarily make a strong enough case for people to continue to be invested. You know, it was fine for what it was, but you got to the end and it was sort of like... And the adventure continues? Yeah, I can come back for the second arc, I cannot come back, it doesn't matter, right? And if it fails to evoke that kind of emotion in you, then taking an extended break and coming back is like, well, you, you kind of have to start from scratch. You have to build your audience back up again because people have kind of moved on. Yeah, I have a lot of criticism for somebody like Rick Remender, but when he starts a project, he commits to it and... Even if you have three books running at the same time, they will be there. The issues will be there month after month after month. And why does he succeed so much? Why do people like him? Because he makes serial comics work. Brian K. Vaughn uh, makes serial comic work. Robert Kirkman makes serial comic work. Yeah. Uh, Sun Bakery, fresh. It's the collection of the first four issues. And that means the first uh, three serialized stories, Dream Skills, Aram, and... Lair Jacket, we reviewed book number one, and we both really liked it. I'm looking forward to the collection. Uh, I, admittedly, I haven't been keeping up with Sun Bakery only because I have been buying it, but I want to be able to read the completed stories. So I'm glad that the trade here specifies which of them will be done by issue three. Uh, anything else for you from Image? Well, yes. Yeah, speaking of anthologies... I have no idea what this is, Tom. I need your help with this. So there's a title here called Annual. It's a 128-page anthology by Joe Casey, with art by Jim Rugg, Luke Parker, Nathan Fox, and Wilfredo Torres. That's a good lineup. 
It's a good lineup. Now, this is not annual number one or annual 2017, so it seems to be a one-shot, but the solicitation text also says it's an annual anthology, so I'm like, what are they going to call the next one? Annual number two. But this isn't annual number one. So? You don't, you don't call <laughs> Rambo 1 Rambo 1 and then call the second one Rambo 2. You just say Rambo and then the other one is Rambo 2. It's like Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4. No, but nobody knew when those first films were coming out that there would be a franchise afterwards. With here, it's like we're planning ahead, but also, I mean, can you imagine how insane that's going to be like in the search terms when you go to Comixology to look for it? You type in annual, you'll never find it. That's a pretty good way to avoid piracy, though. But then, like, if you search by Joe Casey, Hmm. the man's written some comics. You know, it's going to be a bit of a headache. Search by out. Nathan Fox. Like, he hasn't drawn a lot, I think. And he's a good artist. It's, it's a good creative team. And it's an interesting, in general, that there's more and more anthologies in the alternative, like, semi-alternative market. Because, as we said, Sun Bakery and Annual and Parklist, which came out this week, but we haven't had a chance to read. There's a whole lot of one creator-motivated anthologies, either a, a writer, artist, or just a writer. In this case, I'm wondering if maybe that's a reaction to Island, like images analysis of what went wrong with there. They might have concluded that it was the multiplicity of voices and they might have better luck with. There is no image fix. There's like solo creators. Maybe they look at it and say, oh, it's we can do that better or we want to do short stories. We don't want to commit to a long running series. You know, it's just interesting that there are so many of these that are coming out now specifically from, you know, from Image and not from other titles. Like, no one else is really offering that kind of opportunity. Well, Dark Horse has Dark Horse Presents, which run forever, but it's not a one-man show. Now, I did look at the sales for Sunbreakery number one, and I doubt we'll get a second arc unless he has some outside supplementary uh, money because... He might... Or unless it sells really well in Comicsology or something, because, whoa, those, I think issue number one dipped below 6,000 copies. Yeah, but Image has different... But still, you usually you start at like 20,000, 30,000, then you drop to something like 8,000. Just starting at 6,000, by issue four, you'll be, at, you'll be below the 300 line. I think the problem is, like, with Sun Bakery specifically, we're talking about a creator who is not necessarily known to the direct market as such. This isn't someone who you could market based on their name. So then the question turns into, okay, you've got Corey Lewis here. Clearly, his stuff is is visually, at least, and stylistically, in line with a lot of the stuff that Image are doing. The question is, how is Image promoting them? Now, it's possible, as you said, that the digital sales count for more here. In fact, I would probably assume that that's the case because Lewis's primary readership is online. I really hope so because I really like it and I want to see more stories in that vein. Image Plus number one, it's a new launch of the Image uh, solicitation slash preview slash interview magazine, $2.80 pages. In the first volume, they had comics by... Kirkman, they had like a spin-off story from The Walking Dead and they had the Brandon Graham uh, one-page uh, comic lover corner, which was in just philosophizing in art about the nature of comics and fandom and stuff like that. Well, at least it was an Alice code. Uh, in this new one, they're going to do the second season, they're calling it Of Witches. What? 
Yep, yep. They're Run gonna, that by me again? They're publishing Witches via Image Plus. What the hell is going on with Scott Snyder? Scott Snyder is making a lot of money in DC. Uh, maybe he just shoves it to the side. Maybe Jock can't... Jock takes a lot of time to draw comics sometimes, but not that But even long. his work with DC hasn't been up to par on all fronts. Yes, he's been continuing with Batman, but American Vampire is on hiatus. American Vampire hasn't finished. I, I'm not No! I assume it just ended, and you're telling me right now, oh, it's... The second volume ended with a promise of a third, and it's like he didn't finish. The story isn't finished yet. And he, you know, so it, it does seem like all of his energy is going into Batman, which... Scott, if you're listening, that's not the best use of your talents. It is a good way to sell Image Plus, number one, promising a very high, a highly regarded uh, book that people have been looking out for. I read the first almost 14 issues of Image Plus, the first uh, series, and mostly because it was David Brothers editing it, and I really respect the man and the way he writes about comics. But this was him mostly working as an Image Comics guy, so, you know, everything was, oh, it's this great new thing, and there wasn't a lot of depth to it, which is a shame, uh, because, like, if you listen to the podcast he did for Image, uh, which I don't remember the name of, he can go deeper even when working within a company, but this was, the first volume was just, here's the new images, here's the new stuff, here's some short commercial interview. Yeah, Image have a slight promotion problem i think well i I don't think it's a problem it's just asking me to pay to a promotion even if it's uh two dollars for 80 pages is um, why why would i pay for a promotion you should just offer it free online now the witches thing is a good way to attract readers uh it is unless they wait for a trade like that's to me honestly that's more of an argument for trade waiting because it's like okay if you're not committing to releasing this as an actual standalone and you know i'm not personally invested in image plus only because a they have a problem sticking to deadlines anyway so they can end up doing promotional pieces like their expos for books that won't be out for a year and a half secondly you know at some point the solicitations do a good enough job of presenting the core concepts here, I don't necessarily need to hear more about these books until they come out. I'd rather not have the additional context, right? Just go in blind and enjoy it as it is. Uh, anything from Dark Horse for you? Dark Horse? No. Okay, so I'm just going to say uh, Granville Force Majeure. It's a graphic novel by Brian Talbot. It's supposedly the last in the Granville series of steampunk, anthropomorphic animal, Victorian detective stories. I've read the first three and I adore them. I adore them to death. I missed the fourth one. For some reason, I didn't pick it up when it came out and I just forgotten about it. And when it, I'm like, oh yeah, there was a fourth one. There was a Christmas-themed one. And then I didn't pick it up. And now when they announced that, that this is coming out, I should probably buy it and just binge on both of them. I adore them. I adore Brian Talbot in general. And you should definitely pick this up. One of the best strange mystery stories in the market. Okay, boom. Two items of interest. The first is Mech Cadet U, number one. This is a four-issue miniseries by Greg Pak and Takeshi Miyazawa about giant robots from outer space teaming up with space cadets to fight evil aliens, and this time the wrong kid has been picked. So it's a Saturday morning cartoon, basically. I am completely fine with that. Moreover, I might be wrong here, but Pak and Miyazawa, weren't they the ones who created Amadeus Cho? Yep. 
That's a reason for me to care, definitely. Yeah, that's enough as it is. Sold. Uh, Adventure Time, regular show number one. It's a six-issue miniseries by Connor McCreary with art by Matteo Di Miao. And it's a crossover between two very popular TV shows. I think this comes out a bit late because regular show has finished last year. And Adventure Time has been on hiatus for a very long time. They have a miniseries recently, right? Islands or something? It's just that at this point in existence, Adventure Time moved away from the more... It's a weird comedy show that is still what regular show is run its whole length into something much more fantastic and dramatic. Well, they haven't completely given it up, to be fair. No, but it, a crossover between the two of them now feels like... Uh, The two franchises moved away from one another to a certain degree, and it's going to be a bit odd. Well, the interesting thing, see, this is the thing that I can't attest to personally because I haven't been following it. I don't know if the comics had a similar shift. It's possible that the Adventure Time comics, as they've been running at Boom, have been maintaining the tone of the early seasons, in which case a crossover that is also like in comics would just appeal to the same readership. You might as well. Yeah, they have two ongoing Adventure Time comics, actually, at Boom. They have the regular one, which is still ongoing, almost issue 70 now, which is, in today's market, huge. Yeah. And they have a, like, a more comedic series, which is two short stories for every issue, the Adventure Time Comics, comics, as it were. One other item from Boom, Hi-Fi Fight Club number one. This is another four-issue mini, this time by Carly Uzdin and Nina Vacueva. This seems like an 80s nostalgia trip with a touch of Fight Club, which is an interesting combination. And, you know, thinking about it, that might be the thing that Boom does best, the X meets Y high concept. Because this is basically high fidelity, right? A couple of girls working at a record store crossed over with Fight Club because there's a, an underground teenage girl vigilante fight club. That's insane. <laughs> you know, that is balls to the wall insane. So, yeah, sure. Oni Press has something called Dead of Winter, a four-issue miniseries written by Kyle Starks and drawn by Gabo. He's the guy who did... Uh, The Life After. That's the one with the guy who commits suicide and meets... Uh, what's his name, right? Yeah, all sorts of famous people in the afterworld. Hmm, it's supposedly based on a game, and I don't... I think it's a video game or something? Uh, Dead of Winter. Oh, no, no! Tabletop. It's a tabletop game. It's from something... It's from a company called Played Hat Games. Now, I know nothing about that company. I know nothing about nothing, but it's a Kyle Starks written book. At this point, I'm there. So, and it's a four, it's a four issue mini, so it has a, a good finishing line. And Gabo is a pretty good artist. He's not my favorite, but he's a, he knows what he's doing and he has this unique style to him. So, I'm there. Like, <laughs> I'm there. In a pantheon of heroes, none are more lovable and loyal than everyone's beloved good old dog, Sparky. Surviving the wintry apocalypse of the, F of the undead, this former TV star turned zombie killing machine just wants to make friends and be a good boy. That is absolutely a high concept that Kyle Starks will do terrible, terrible things to. Uh, anything else for you? Uh, two items of interest, one from IDW and one from Archie. So in IDW, uh... 
how can I put this? Lo, the end of days has hath come, as was prophesied in the books of Tom. Uh, First Strike Number One by Margaret Scott and David Rodriguez, Max Dunbar on art. It is the long-awaited by some who are not me Hasbro crossover event. May Glob have mercy the other on one, your they soul. Had one last year. <laughs> no, but this is like all of them apparently. It's like mask and and I I couldn't even recognize. Listen, that cover looked like. You know how kids will sometimes mess up their rooms to an extent where the toys are just everywhere? And it looks like like a toy box just exploded in the middle of the room. That's what that cover looks like. I don't know what properties are involved here, and I do not care. Transformers, G.I. Joe, ROM, Mask, Micronauts. Uh, no Visionaries, Knights of the Magical Light, though. Um, hmm. As far as you know. No, 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 they have, I, I would have known if somebody picked up that license, Sean. It's part of my childhood. <laughs> no, no Wild West Cowboys of Mumesa either. Um, Aww. I tried to talk to IDW to let me do a dinosaur. Uh, <laughs> di- Dino Riders. Do you remember the one with the aliens using dinosaurs yes. as giant weapon platforms? And why don't you do that? Surely the license can't be that expensive. I'll write it for free, IDW. I'll even draw it. And I can't draw, but I'll draw it. It'll be awesome. Um, okay, the whole Hasbroverse thing, I don't really like it. I like some of the titles. The Transformers titles are still okay because written by okay people. Uh, they're ongoing G.I. Joe by Aubrey Sederton and Giannis Milianalis, I think it's pronounced. It's a Greek name, I don't know how to say it. It's a pretty good comic. It's a, like G.I. Joe taking to like more science fiction-y realms. They're fighting... Aliens and underground monsters and stuff. Okay. But just when you put all of these characters back together, there's this sort of flattening effect. You know, everybody just loses the personality and becomes just part of this giant toy conglomerate thing. And Scott is a pretty good writer. It's just that I'm not interested in reading her doing this. But, I mean, you're describing every single crossover ever. Yes. Right? In terms of flattening characters to the point where they're no longer recognizable or interesting or anything like that. I mean, that's what crossovers do. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. Speaking of the completely other thing, something completely different. Uh, My Pretty Vampire is a Fantagraphics uh, graphic novel uh, written and drawn by Katie Scally, who's an alternative artist I really like. And it's about a young girl named Clover who's a vampire and her brother basically keeps her locked in the house forever until one day she escapes. And it's a sophisticated, sex-positive, horror-comedy type thing. Uh, I I really, really like Katie Skelly's second book, uh, Operation Margarine, which was basically uh, Telma and Louise's take, only filtered via drug deserts in Stoner Rock. <laughs> her first book uh, Nurse Nurse was not so much to my taste it was like a collection of mini comics and you can sort of see how she just throws around ideas every new chapter something completely crazy happens and then the next chapter nothing remains of it like she's in space and she's kidnapped by aliens and then there are drugs and there are intelligent drugs and she's in a completely different planet and who's this guy and who's that guy like so many ideas but I, I, really, I really like her style, and it's one of my most expected books of the year, actually. And that's the sort of thing I don't tend to go for. But, uh, you know, best of luck. One other item, not so much uh, what's there, but what isn't from Archie Comics, uh, Jughead is missing. 
and I am concerned. I had a feeling that Wade might not be able to keep up with two ongoings in addition to everything else, but damn it, like, this book can't catch a break. They've gone through three different creative teams. It's not even at issue 20 yet. This book hasn't even been around for two years. And it's just, it's been bouncing around in terms of artistic style, in terms of tone. Wade taking over, I was like, fine, he's not ideal, but whatever. And now the first issue came out yet, anyway? No, that's uh, July, I think. Okay. So really, like, this book is cursed or something. All I want is to read, like, regular modern Jughead and not that weird emo creature that's hobbling around on Riverdale, proudly proclaiming to the world that he's weird, as if that's something Jughead would do. Maybe it's a month off. Maybe they're looking for a new artist. We'll see. Shall we move on to reviews? Uh, let's get normals number one of the way. Uh, 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 oh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, this is a new uh, series from Aftershock. It's an ongoing, I believe. Yep. It's written by Adam Glass, who did Rough Riders for Aftershock. And he was the guy who revived Suicide Squad for DC during the New 52. And he's yep. a TV guy originally, I believe. He writes Supernatural and Criminal Minds and a couple of other stuff. And it's drawn by somebody called Dennis Calero, who's a name I'm, I'm like, I know I heard that name, but I just can't right now tell you what he drawn before, but it's a name, like he's not someone completely new. Dennis Calero, I think he did uh, X Factor with Peter David. He's a Marvel DC guy, he has a history, it just, I don't remember the exact history of him right now. He's not super prominent, but I think he did that, and, um, oh... Okay, so you, the the one thing you might know him from, he did uh, X-Men Noir, back when Marvel was doing, like, the noir books. I have read none of the noir books, because if I want, like, if I want to read a noir book, I'll read a noir book. I don't need, like, you, it's like you got X-Men in my noir, you got noir in my X-Men. <laughs> I will say, though, uh, X-Men Noir is actually pretty good. Okay. No, I'll fair, just put fair. that out there. So, the normals. Why don't you tell our listeners what it's about? <laughs> well... Take a Philip K. Dick book, like one of his lesser novellas, uh, shave the IQ by 50%, let's say, and then pretend that the audience is really shocked by the revelation that something is wrong with these people and their memories. And it's one of those, I don't want to spoil it, I don't want to spoil it, but if you read this issue, you will be spoiled by page five, you'll be like, oh, that's the thing that happened, right? Well, I'll tell you what. I am going to spoil it, and I'll tell you why. I actually have a theory that might explain some of the problems with this book. Just to clarify for the readers, then, what happens is that you have uh, a man whose his last name is actually normal, like the family's name here is normal. See, see, it's symbolism. Oh, so deep. And uh, they find out... The entire family, right? They, they decide to go back to their hometown because the son has been acting a little weird and the father notices that there's some kind of weird light coming from his skin. So they take him to their hometown. Nobody recognizes them. Nobody knows that they exist. And then it turns out that they're all robots. Shock. No, 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 no. Readers, you are shocked. You've never seen you anything like this before. shocked before. Yeah. Now, I, I want to be clear here. I think... So this is my theory. I think that there's a problem specific to writers 
who are coming into comics from other media. As we mentioned, yes, Adam Glass had a run on Suicide Squad back in 2011. He, he wrote a few straight issues of Deadpool, nothing consistent, but he's primarily a TV writer. In terms of original content, it's pretty much this, The Normals, and Rough Riders. I'm starting to wonder, Tom, if these outside writers, so to speak, are under the impression that the rest of the industry is as stagnant as the big two. Because you look at this issue, and I can almost imagine Glass thinking to himself that that last twist where the father finds out we're all robots would be something that a reader of Marvel or DC would never see coming. In 1980, maybe. No, no, no. Even today. I think that they're stuck in that mindset of everyone else is the same way with Marvel and DC, where they'll be shocked by tricks of the trade. But here's the thing. Anyone who's been reading Image or Boom or Aftershock or Black Mask or literally anything else for the last five years, what Glass does here practically qualifies as playing it straight. A twist on this formula would be for the whole world to be robots except them. I don't think that Glass, and I've seen this problem with a lot of other TV writers who are coming into the medium, who are not really thinking about taking the, you know, the big twist, the hook of their story a step further because they think they don't need to. I think there's still some of that ingrained perception of comics as juvenilia where they don't think they have to work that hard. To which I say, this book insults my intelligence because I figured out that they were all robots literally the moment that that little bit of electricity sparks from the sun's head. I'm like, yeah, okay, I see exactly where this is going. And again, at this point, you know, in the indie circuit, you almost train yourself to expect the double twist, right? So they find out that they are not the robots, everyone else is the robots. Or something like that. Or that the son is a robot, or the father is a robot, and the mother isn't, or something like that, right? You almost expect there to be a second turn, because that has become the norm at this point. It's practically commonplace, especially with Image and Boom and, and those companies, right? Aftershock included, right? Animosity, for example, doesn't just rest on the premise of the animals have sentience. It takes it one step further and says there's another layer to that twist. You see that everywhere. So for Glass not to do that, I think it can't be incompetence, although, you know, Supernatural is still on the air, so that, that might be part of it. But... There's no ambition here. And the lack of ambition, I really think, comes from not really understanding that, you know, in this day and age, writers have gone past what you think is the normal twist. It could have been, like, it could have been made better, not good, but better if the art was anything interesting, but it's just like... The coloring really bugs me. It's remember when we talked about Mia, and we've mentioned how the color, the like the smudgy color type, basically feels like it erases the pencils. It's like this here. Like everybody has a plastic sheen to them, which was fine if you're trying to make a point about them being robots, but it's not. Everybody looks like that, including the normal people. You know what this reminded me of? Only done much more successfully. You remember one of the uh, the Marvel Next books a long, long time ago was Machine Teen. 
You remember when they tried to do uh, X-52 as like a teenager in high school who didn't know that he was a robot? See, I'm, I'm thinking directly to Hard Boiled by Miller and Jeff there, but this is, it's like, it's, it, I'm insulting Hard Boiled by mentioning it in the same breath as this series. Because Hard Boiled, you know, like page two, we know he's a robot. It's, and it's not about, and it's not about pretending, oh, is it a mystery? No, obviously he's a robot. It's what does it does to his brain realizing that he's a robot. And, and like giving in and being grinded down out of whatever humanity he's managed to achieve as a sentient AI. And that was that in like in three issues they did so much. And here's like one issue. You did nothing. You told me they're robots. You told me the concept of your series, which you announced the solicitations. And I didn't read them. And I still know what was happening. Like they're called they're called the normals. It's so on the nose. They're, they're going to a small town where they grew up called Liberty. Uh huh. Liberty, New York. And if you do that, if you're going over the top, then play it over the top. Do like I like you said, X fifty one, the next wave version, with like my robot brain need beer. Play it for laughs, but you can't be so on the nose and expect us to take it seriously. Like this is the tragic story. Where are we human? Nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. See, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you know, for Glass to still be stuck on the question of people will be invested in the idea of a family exploring what's human. Hey, Tom King's The Vision came out last year. We're good. You know, you do you have anything else? Philip K. Dick's entire catalog came out before <laughs> you were born. <laughs> like, like it's said, true. It's, it's, it's not even about comics. It's anybody who's seen a movie, read a book. Anybody who's over 12 has seen this story a dozen times. A variation on that story. You have to make something out of it other than just playing it so boringly straight. Exactly. It's not enough to just take the one step. Especially, like we said, you know, these are indie comics. The indie industry as a whole as exemplified by Image, Boom, Aftershock, Black Mask, IDW, even freaking Archie will usually have a subversion of a twist, right? So if you're not working on that level, you're wasting your time and you're wasting my time. Shall we move on to something else? Let's. What have you got? Uh, you've read Wanderlust Blues number one, so I I've have. read it as well. Yes, this is by Sid R. Quaid. Uh, from 215 Inc. or 215 Inc. I don't know. That's like, this company exists for a while and I haven't read anything by them. It's like, that's not a good name for a company. It's just a number. I'll be honest with you. This was way off the beaten track. I only found this randomly on Comixology. Like, just browsing at random, and it popped up, and I was like, hmm, that cover looks interesting. I've never heard of this company. I've never heard of Sid Quaid. I don't know nothing about nothing. So tell us what it's about. Wanderlust Blues number one. Uh, the world has come to an end, and after giant monsters have essentially stomped the Earth back into the Middle Ages, the offspring of these monsters, who are half-human creatures called chimeras have to feed on blood every now and then, lest they turn into monsters themselves. And they're roaming the land, civilization is pretty much gone bust. The protagonist of the story is a chimera named Raleigh and his adopted daughter Lavinia. They're wandering the forest, and they come across this cabin where an alleged monster hunter lives with a dark secret. As first starts go, I thought it was interesting. Not a whole lot goes on there, but there are some darker twists 
than I expected. The thing that I found really interesting here is Quaid's artwork. Because he seems to be invoking a sort of cartoonish style. There are elements here that could be associated with something like the Steven Universe aesthetic in terms of the facial features and the eyes and how the characters are drawn. But at the same time, there's a touch of the grotesque here. Like when you actually see one of these monsters and what they look like. And it serves the story really, really well. Because on the one hand, you know, Raleigh is drawn as sort of the sympathetic big father figure, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the story does draw attention to the monstrous aspects that you can't ignore. He's got to drink blood. Yeah, and he does. And, you know, there's a lot of, of potential in this setting. I'm really interested in it. It reminds me a bit of uh, Roger Language style, not as accomplished, but maybe this guy is young and he has to work for it. But it is like, it doesn't look like most of anything else on your shelves right now or in Comixology. And it's it captures you immediately. Either it's one of those, well, you either like it or hate it, but you don't just stay natural to it. Like the normals, which is, oh, it's like, it's comic art, whatever. Yeah, that's not what this is. This is something that you look at it and you either go, wow, or you go, it's not for me. And I'm definitely in the wow camp. Uh, the lettering is weird to me. Like, everybody has uh, yellow lettering on black speech bubbles. Everybody. And it's just this one character. So, I don't get it. Is it is he making a point here? Or does he just prefer this style? Some of it is a bit inelegant. There's one point where this guy's saying, nobody captures more than five chimeras a night. And the five looks like the word give. Like the letters sort of uh, swallow into one another. And bad lettering is something that you notice immediately. Like good lettering is something that you technically you're not supposed to notice. But bad lettering is something that just jumps right at you. And it's not bad, but it's not... Could have been better, I'd say. I mean, that would really be the only obstacle for me. But I think I sort of, you know, you power on through based on... Because I do think it has a lot of potential. I'm really interested to see what comes next. Yeah, that's a it's a great surprise of a brook. Like, I didn't expect anything. You told me I've read it. And I said, oh, I haven't. I, I've bought it. I haven't read it yet. I just started reading through it. Oh, it's it's really fun. Like, And it does some very interesting thing. And it's so colorful that it can do the super dark, terrible things happening without being overwhelmingly dark because the art style is... Uh, like light in its essence. Uh, it what, doesn't feel jarring. What was the series we've talked about from Midas Flesh? You remember when we said you can do those super horrible things even though the art is so uh, cartoonish and in many ways because the art is so cartoonish you can do those things without just making the reader think oh this is so depressive I just don't want to read it anymore. Uh, anything else to say about it? Um, no, I recommend it. I don't know this publisher at all, so I don't know how reliable they are. I, I don't know anything about this book, when the next issue is coming, nothing like that. Uh, but I will be keeping my eyes open. Mm, okay. Uh, I have a trade I want to talk about. I've recently purchased and read Small Favors, the definitive girly porno, porno collection by Colin Coover. Uh, we've, Ooh, la, la. we've talked about it before when it was announced. And this collects every single small favor issue, mini comic, cover, thing, whatever. 
And okay, I'm gonna try to describe it without being too much to make to to take the rating of this show to NC17 level. Ooh, this is gonna be interesting. Go for it, Tom. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a shirt collar, but you can imagine me a uh, little. Little uh, old me just like pulling my shirt going like, <coughs> well, the plot is, uh, <laughs> no, no, but seriously, Small Favors is about a lady who has masturbated too much throughout her short life that the queen of her inner mind, like the queen of her consciousness, summoned her to her magic realm and told her, you can never masturbate ever again. And to make sure that you will never do it, I'm giving you a guardian, little Nibble, who's like a little fairy thing, and she will look out for you. Uh, except Nibble is very much the most sexual being in the universe. And they basically spent issue after issue sleeping together in every manner possible. And at a certain point, there's another friend and they become a threesome. And it's all, <laughs> it's all very cute and very athletic. Now, okay... I am not a porn guy. But, A, it's a very lovely looking book. B, there is something deeper to this. Because the thing that you notice once you finish the whole series, it's about 300 pages. But very, like a very quick read because there's very little text. It's mostly just, what can I do with these characters physically? And some gags, because Colin Coovers can't do without. There's some very funny gags here. The thing that you notice, there isn't a single male person throughout the whole thing. It's a completely female world, and they don't they don't draw attention to it. They don't say we live in a female world. It's just a world where ladies exist, and that's reverse sexism. Something like that. Yeah, thank God, thank God these people didn't notice it. It's a world where ladies exist and they have fun having sex. There is nothing negative about it. The only person who reacts to it negatively is the queen of the consciousness, and she disappears after the first few pages. There's another character supposedly from inside her mind coming in to inspect her and nibble. But while inspecting them, she mistakenly goes to their neighbor's house and she becomes attracted to the neighbor. So therefore, she starts having sex also. And then, <laughs> and then, and then she says to nibble and the lady, well, you, it's terrible. You're not supposed to have sex. You will come to my house and the neighbor that I'm living in with and we will punish you. Oh, yes, we will punish you. Oh, and, no! And, and you sort of get what happens. But we've talked, when we did the interview with uh, Chip Zdarsky, and we've said how nice it was that comics seem to finally moving into a place, comic as a culture, comics as a medium, moves into a place where you can present sex as just things that people do because it makes them happy. Not think that you do because, oh, it's, it's a comic, and if we're doing, and if we're showing sex, it's going to shock the establishment or, you know, sex is a form of sex loading as it was in so many superhero comics. Like, oh, he's having rough sex. It probably means he has a rough life, stuff like that. Or he's a bad person. Yeah, yeah. No, this is just people having sex because they like it. Specifically, women having sex with other women with no male interference. And A, it's it was so far ahead of the curve that only now, 17 years later, some small part of the comic industry... Maybe, sorta, kinda, but not really catching up to what it described. But B, in 2017, in the year when they do the TV version of The Handmaid's Tale, and everybody's not saying, it's, you know, it's a complete fantasy, they're saying, yeah, it's a pretty fair description of the oncoming reality. 
There is something very subversive about this book basically saying, you can't tell us what to do. We do what we want to do and we're having fun. And sex is not something terrible or oppressive. Uh, the, the female body is not something the male body can control because males aren't important to us. We don't need you. And they don't say, they don't shout it out. There's never a point in the book where somebody's standing and making speech. Like I said, it's mostly just gags and sex. I tried to write a review for my uh, Hebrew blog and I just had to travel because it's a PG-13 blog. It's just hard to find a single page where there is no just nudity or sex. It's just hard. It's just hard. You just, she doesn't want to waste any time. It's either two people having sex, several people having sex, or deleting to several people having sex. I would like to issue a word of personal thanks to Colleen Coover for making my co-host say the word sex more in this episode than he has the entire run of the Smorgasbord thus far. I think the entire time of me having knowing you. <laughs> and getting him to utter the phrase, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard at the oh, end of it yeah. as a bonus. Thank you, Miss Coover. You rock. And it's, a, it's such a great, fun book. And it's a super quick read and... The contrast that I always use to compare it is like you have small favors on one end of the spectrum and you have Lost Girls on the other. Uh. Where both of these books supposedly deal with the idea of sexuality and sexual liberation and, you know, the, the fact that intimacy is a way for characters to connect to each other. But where Moore takes it into like creepy borderline pedophilia weirdness as he does, Coover is all about the fun of it, right? Even like the process of reading it is like, you know, it's fun. It flows well. You move from one page to the next. Like it, it doesn't trip you up at any point. More problem, well, one of several problems is that he's so busy trying to intellectualize to his readers. It's like, I will explain to you logically and mystically and scientifically why sex is fun and important. And Colin Cooper is just like, sex is fun. Sex is fun. Let's do sex. Let's do more sex. And more is like, he's the stern teacher, teach, like trying to teach you about sexuality in school. Like, kids, open book to. Now I will explain to you how Victorian sexuality leads to repression and therefore I will liberate your mind. While Colin Cooper just no, 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 no. Let's just have sex. Let's just fuck. Let's do it! Let's fall in love! Because, like, Lost Girls is not healthy in terms of its depiction of sex, right? Because it goes, like, into really weird places. And I'm like, no, you don't really need to mystify it like that. You think you're being liberating, but by making it sort of this mystical experience, artistic nonsense that he does, you're kind of falling into the same trap as the people that you are trying to poke criticism at. Whereas Coover is just like, no, let's just go for it. It's kind of, I don't know... See, I haven't read enough of it to make a definitive statement, but it seems to me that Coover, like that end of the spectrum of small favors, you would probably also find Empowered there. It's a little more exploitative. No, but Empowered, Empowered, which is a book I really like, is still something that deals with characters while neurotic and very self-consciousness about it. And the whole point of small favors is that after the setup, after the, well, why Nibble is there, why she can do all these fantastic things with her body, she can shriek, she can grow larger, she can <laughs> whatever... After this short setup, they just jumped right into it, and there, there is no neurosis there. 
And it's almost like there's no depth to it, but depth is not the point. The joy is the point. And how far we've come when you think about it, from the days of that one issue of the Avengers from Jeff Johns, where Hank shrinks and goes down under for Jan. And then when he comes back up, he says, your turn. What does he expect her to do exactly? It's, I, I think those are actually like came towards the same time. It's like small, <laughs> small favors is like, it's originally, I think, 97 to 2000. And that Jeff, was the time, and yeah. Je- and Jeff Jones wrote the Avengers in like 2001, so... She's ahead of her time, is, is what it is. You know, thank God it's a podcast. My face has turned so red <laughs> during this reading. I'm like, I really love this, and I really should recommend it, and I'm so uncomfortable talking about it because I'm me. I'm this empowered, super neurotic person. Just talking about the idea of having sex in company, to me, is like the most weird thing ever. But I accept your recommendation and I, I second it because it really is great. And I'm, I'm so glad that they reissued it, you know, for a very long time. It was a hard title to get. I think it was originally published as like an eight issue series it was back in, in the, the day. Fantagraphics Eros comics line. Yeah, not easy to track down. So I'm, I'm glad that it's back now. I hope that, uh, that it goes up on Comixology. I haven't been, I haven't found it yet, but. It's via Ani, so it should be available. Though, again, maybe because it's NC-17 and Comixology, I think they, they have a limit on what they published. I don't know. You remember there was this thing with Saga with certain issues became super explicit and Comixology said, we're not gonna, we can't publish these issues? No, that was Amazon, I think. And, yeah, Apple, when Amazon bought Comixology. But when you look at it, like it, Saga is still there. All the issues are still there. Yeah, so. fair is fair. Oh, here we go. It is there. Oh, there you go, Sean. Well, I know there, what I'm buying. There you go, everybody. Okay. So um, I also have a trade review. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull us back towards a more innocent <laughs> innocent environment, though maybe not so much. So, okay. But first of all, before I get into this review, I want to make it absolutely clear that the only reason I read this trade is because a friend let me borrow it. I am not willing to give Marvel any more of my money at this time. So, keeping that in mind, I read the first volume of The Unbelievable Gwenpool, Christopher Hastings' Guru Hero, collecting issues 0 to 4. Now, the reason that I even decided to look towards The Unbelievable Gwenpool was because, for all that we have been saying that she is obnoxious in terms of she's everywhere and she grew out of a gag, which is never a good sign. I have been consistently hearing from top critics in the field who I, whose opinion I respect. Like me, Sean. Like you, of course. But also, you know, Paul O'Brien, Al Kennedy have said good things about it. Basically, every critic that I sort of keep tabs on has said it's really good. Now, I decided, fine. I borrowed the first trade, sat down with it, I said, let's give it a fair shot. And I have to cite Mea Culpa. It's really, really, really good. Yeah. The high concept is basically Deadpool taken a step further. Gwen Poole, who is not Gwen Stacy, uh, is either from our world or a world where Marvel Comics exist, meaning... She thinks she knows how this fictional universe works because she's a fan. Now, I have to give credit to Christopher Hastings here because he draws so much 
comedy and pathos at the same time out of the idea that she's frequently proven wrong. This is someone whose only real superpower, she has no combat training, no enhanced strength, nothing. Her only power is her knowledge of genre tropes, specifically Marvel genre tropes, and she knows everyone's secrets because she's a reader. It's actually really funny. Now, there are sort of two aspects to this humor, I think. First of all, there's the, just like the straight up comedy, which to my surprise, I mean, Hastings really pulls it off. There's a scene in issue one where somebody gives Gwen a huge paycheck. She takes a marker and draws dollar signs on her mask's eyes. And I laughed for a solid two minutes. Guru Hero really sells the slapstick and the response of it. Oh my god, it was amazing. And then, you know, the twists and turns are really clever because the first issue ends on this really dark note that I didn't see coming. And then it sort of seesaws back and forth between the comedic aspects on the one hand and the darker, more serious elements, which you wouldn't think would be a part of a character like Gwenpool as she's presented in the marketing, right? You think that she's just the Harley Quinn of the Marvel Universe, but there's something more to her, and I really like that part. It's more like, rather than being a Deadpool knockoff, it's almost like a reverse Animal Man, only played as a weird comedy. I like several things about this series. The first thing is, and you only read the first trade, but even then, she never catches a break. She never... She always tries to establish... A status quo for himself she's like i'm the mercenary then i'm the mercenary under this guy then i'm a superhero and it never works it never lasts more than two issues before the fictional reality just snaps against her it's that and it's the fact that more often than not the reason that her circumstances tend to change beyond her control is because she's trying to use the knowledge that she has and it's not working she thinks she can predict what people will do because she knows them as fictional characters. And every now and then they surprise her. He makes a really good use of the supporting cast. Like she works with, uh, Bertok? Bertok? How do you pronounce it? The Leaper. Yeah, the, with the Leaper. And in most comics, he's, he's the punchline guy. He's, like literally, he's the guy there to get punched by Captain America. But yep, here, which he tells him. Yeah, but here is the competent one, and he's so annoyed when he realizes that this mercenary he's supposed to work with has no skills whatsoever. And it's just joy. And Guru Hero. Damn, Guru Hero. I love their art so much. One of the biggest shames of the Marvel Universe is the fact that their Power Pack run, they had a series of miniseries with Power Pack teaming up every four issues with different characters. You remember Power Pack... And the X-Men, Power Pack Spider-Man, Power Pack Iron Man, it's not in print anymore for some reason. And you should easily be able to sell that to kids. And adults with a good sense of humor. These were great series. Guru Hero found this fine line between like cute and comedic without becoming overbearing. Because you can see other artists, and there are filling artists in the series later, unfortunately, sometimes trying to make this character work and it becomes like a grotesque thing. It's not funny when someone else does it. You need them to establish the world and to show her response. Like you said, the scenes where she draws the dollars on her mask, it really like a subtle scene. Comedic yeah, but it's sequence. funny. It is yeah. so freaking funny when that happens. Oh, I just, I, I had a fantastic time with it. And also, 
I had sort of a meta moment with this book. So follow my thinking here. The Unbelievable Gwenpool, in addition to just being a delightful book in itself, struck me as being the antithesis of a similar track that we got from DC, specifically from Jeff Johns, where the only use he could think of for Superboy Prime was to make him a caricature of the fanboy who's always complaining about how comics are wrong and not supposed to be this way, and whatever happened to predictability, the milkman, the paperboy, evening TV, right? Gwen is the exact opposite. She is starstruck when she meets Thor and Ms. Marvel. Her failings are not because of her fandom. It's because she doesn't really understand how to navigate the Marvel Universe as an actant rather than a reader, right? She She's involved now, so she doesn't function as well within it, but she does love it. And my aha moment for this book is... If Marvel executives, cough David Gabriel, cough, had any kind of self-awareness, Gwen would be the kind of fan that they would be courting rather than the Superboy Primes, right? Someone who is quintessentially upbeat and positive about the books that they're reading regardless of the circumstances, and who are more invested in the characters and in new opportunities than constantly moaning about some imagined past and punching walls. Like, the core of Superboy Prime, as Jeff Johns wrote him in one of those crises, I forget which one it was. Which one was it? Infinite, Infinite Crisis? Crisis. He appeared okay, in Infinite that. Crisis. All right. So the whole take there was like, it's the bitter fanboy, right? And then I think he was the one who then went on, or was it Cullen Bond, one of them, went on to do Aquaman, where Aquaman sits down with a blogger. Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns. Johns. Uh, Johns again, okay. When the so characters are reactive to the fans in a very angry, like, I'll show you up way, it's usually Jeff Johns writing. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about Hastings' take, right? He starts from the same premise. Gwen is a super fan. She's someone who knows Marvel comics, Front to back. She knows everybody's secret identities. She knows their backstories. She knows every twist they've ever been through. She knows everything. The knowledge doesn't help her, which is the whole joke of the series. But it, she is a fundamentally positive character. Whereas Superboy Prime, all he does is express, like, you know, bitterness and why can't things be the way they used to? And I hate this new direction. And why does everything suck? And it's like... Yeah, those are sort of the two polar extremes of the readers that Marvel and DC tend to attract in the first place. And if they had half a brain, they would be thinking more about getting people like Gwen who would stick with them through the tough spots or whatever, as opposed to constantly trying to placate the neckbeards who, to be blunt, will never be happy with them. The Zack Snyder thing that pissed you off at the start of the episode, the Chelsea Kane, it doesn't end. The Wonder Woman screenings, there's always going to be that individual who cannot really be reasoned with or placated. Marvel is under the mistaken impression that if they go for the meat and potatoes, if they go for the old school and they try to go back to the classics and they get rid of all the diverse characters and they bring all the other ones back, you know, that the neckbeards will suddenly be like, oh, yes. We love you again. No. They're going to be the ones who will still be punching walls saying now the continuity is wrong. So it just sort of struck me in that moment reading how, you know, she reads Marvel Comics. 
She enjoys Marvel Comics. She understands Marvel Comics. And despite the fact that she sucks at being a superhero, she's really bad at it. <laughs> really bad at it. Comically bad. And sort of in the exact opposite way as Kamala Khan figured out how to be a hero pretty quickly, Gwenpool is just the worst. And like you said, the pathos of it works because the idea that she... She thinks of them as fictional characters, so she can joke around, but then when something serious happens, she's in shock because, wait, this isn't on the page. It happens to me. Yeah. The setup for that, I thought, was brilliant. Like, this happens in the first issue. She mocks a character who all of her knowledge as a reader tells her is a character who's a comedy figure. Someone that everyone laughs at. And this character responds by killing someone. Which is, on the one hand, like, theoretically in character, but on the other hand, as readers, like Gwen, we have gotten so used to mocking this character, you don't think of them as dangerous until they are. And even better, when the thing happens to the supposedly comedic character, there is... <laughs> it rung out more emotion than me, and her response to it rung out more emotion than me than any major death in the Marvel Universe in the last... 20 years or so because when those people die they just die and and here it's like oh this means something to her to Gwenpool and therefore it means something to me yeah I, like you said the meta element of it I think she is actually to a point her original her the one before coming into the Marvel Universe represents something of the neckbeard despite not being as you said a neckbeard herself because she's someone who views People, like things that we, you know, we know are people, she thinks of as fictional characters and therefore she can just mock them and she can just shoot guns willy-nilly in the middle of the street and nothing bad will happen because who cares? But she has a point though. They are fictional characters. Yeah, but here's the thing. A lot of the problem with this type of nerd personality in the real world is that they learn to treat everybody like fictional creations, right? You, you can, you know, you can mock people, you can friend them online. Because they are as real to you as the characters on your computer screen. And in a sort of, I think it's a sort of commentary on how if you learn to develop empathy to fictional characters, it's not the only step, but it's a good step towards thinking about other people as alive. And you, and if you think of everybody in the same level of they don't matter, then they really don't matter to you. Everybody becomes disposable at the same time. Yeah, then you become a socially repugnant creature like... <laughs> we've talked, so we've many talk, examples we've talked have demonstrated yeah so I, I really enjoyed it I am hoping to borrow again like I have and you know what the fact that she even mentions that like she's working really hard to entertain the reader because they're paying $4.99 I'm like oh Gwen on the one hand excellent point on the other hand it's still $4.99 <laughs> basically the way that I see this going I want to read more uh, I will either wait for a sale on trades or I'll borrow them. You know, to those of our listeners who are fans of Marvel, who don't have, you know, the imperative that I have placed for myself to not give them money because of recent decisions that they've made, if you are so inclined, I strongly recommend The Unbelievable Gwenpool. Get it while it lasts, because this is probably one of those books that's going to get swept under the rug when the pendulum swings I back. think the last they started an issue 16, a new story arc, and it looks like it's heading to be the big final. Now, now it could be, it, like you said, it's a series I'd like to twist 
to twist upon a twist, so it could be a misdirection. And I think uh, Moon Knight was over. Like, Moon Knight released its last issue uh, the day before we record this, and Gwenpool is apparently... Well, it's gonna end sometime soon, because it's Marvel Comics, 25 issues. is the longest, I think, a book not named Spider-Man can survive nowadays. And I think that's it for me. I'm not gonna jump on any new Marvel trains unless it's something really super spectacular, unless they announce... We've resurrected Jack Kirby to draw our new Fantastic Four runners. Oh, like leave this. Jack Kirby alone. There are plenty uh, okay. of contemporary creators. If, if but... they bring in Tom Scioli to do the Fantastic Four, maybe, <laughs> like, maybe. And even that, it's a maybe. It's a big maybe. But it's a good... The end of the series, whenever it will be, I think is a good chance for me to jump off completely from the Marvel train. Same. You know, Moon Knight has ended. Doctor Strange... Uh... Aaron's run is over. Tom Taylor is still on Wolverine, but to be frank, if they're bringing back Logan, that's not going to last. I I really liked all new Wolverine, but not enough to carry on with the new reboot. And it's probably going to be a $5 series because it's Marvel. They're going to try and bump up the numbers again because it's Marvel. And there are so many good people working there, but I don't care because it's Marvel. I have to say that Aaron's run really jumped the... uh... It jumped the shark big time. Oh, really? His his run on Thor. My God, the last storyline was really bad. We'll I'm, get to that. I, I, I'm way back, so maybe we'll talk about it. More likely not. <laughs> Probably not. I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, so that was that. That was another episode of the Smorgasbord. Uh, if you liked it, like, share, and subscribe on Facebook, on Twitter, go to the Patreon of Sequart and give them and therefore us money. We like money. We are greedy capitalist pigs that like that. Uh, and I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Adrian. Until next time. Bon appetit.